Do not miss the Story Brand Marketing live stream. It takes place on September 14th and 15th. If you've never attended or you want to attend again, I'm amazed at how many people come back and back and back because they just get so much out of it that gets them money, that grows their business. There's one coming up September 14th and 15th. You want to register at storybrand.com. What you get at the StoryBrand live stream is a clear message and a sales funnel. We will actually help you clarify your message and then put that message into a sales funnel that converts customers into buyers, potential customers into people who actually pull out their credit card and give you money. If that sounds good to you, register at storybrand.com. We've got one coming up September 14th and 15th. It's two days. You'll be in a small group with a coach who can give you live feedback. It's not like watching television. It'd be like watching television, except you can always ask somebody questions about what's going on in the episode. And of course, television loses you money. This makes you money. You want to register at storybrand.com. It's coming up September 14th and 15th. Do not miss it. Go to storybrand.com and we'll see you there. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., I want to put you in a hypothetical situation, a scenario, if you will, and you have to tell me what is your strategy. Okay. All right. Well, it's actually kind of hypothetical, but I bring it up with- Kind of, but real? Yeah, it's actually really happened. Okay. Betsy and I were down in her small Louisiana town Uh that she grew up in. Yep. There is a little bit of controversy in the town because there is a school, okay. a private school, and this private school has buildings on either side of a road, Okay, and they went to the city and said, we want the road. We want to shut down the road. Okay. The problem is the road is a road that trucks go down to deliver food and goods to an independently owned grocery store. Mm. It would effectively cripple the grocery store to shut down this road. Oh, wow. The city has taken sides. The citizens of the city are up in arms. Yeah. The meetings got heated. Dun, dun, dun. You are a moderator in the meeting. What is your tactic to get both sides Ooh. to calm down and come to a compromise? Oh, man. I think the first thing I would try to do is is find the highest value that both sides hold Ooh, true. This guy's good. Okay, let's find something up here that's higher than both of the values that you're trying to. And common. And, in the and Venn diagram, yep. what's the overlap? And start there. Yeah. And just kind of see where we can kind of agree on sides of that. In a lot of my research with like my PhD, there's a lot of study that shows that facts don't matter <laughs> in convincing people of arguments, right? Especially when it comes to ideology. And so facts deal with the mind, stories deal with the imagination. Hmm. And so the imagination trumps the mind. Exactly. Often. Imagination and will, actually. Story and narrative work on the will and the imagination of somebody while facts work on the mind. So if you actually want to, if people are burying their feet in the sand, like going, digging their feet in the sand and saying, I am not moving, that is a matter of will. You cannot change will with facts. You have to change will with story. So first we start with a common value, and then we start bringing in stories that illustrate that value in order to help people buy in and change their will to Well, you're not saying anything too different than today's guest. Really? Lee Lee Hartley Carter wrote a book. Listen to this. The title of the book is Persuasion. The subtitle is Convincing Others When Facts Don't (laughs) Seem to Matter. That's amazing. JJ, she beat you to it. She also, I posed the same question to her. Uh What would you do in that meeting in this small town? Uh And she actually gets into it. And she divides the room. 
You won't believe this. Yeah. She divides the room, even though politics has not come up, period. Yeah. She still divides the room into Republicans and Democrats. And she really? Says, she predicts this is where the Republicans are, and this is where the Democrats are, and this is why. <gasps> and then she and she's not either. Yeah. You know, she's very empathetic toward both positions. Interesting. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. You got to listen to the interview uh. or read the book. But she divides the room and talks about how we get through this. And of course, we're not talking about a small school in Louisiana. We're talking about the Biden-Trump election. Yeah. We're talking about health care. We're talking about your Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what we're really talking about. Yeah. <laughs> She's wonderful, compassionate, and brilliant. Lee Hartley Carter, it's an honor to have her on the show. It won't be the last time we have her for sure. So we'll get right to it. How do you persuade people when uh, the facts are clearly in your lane? Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. Uh, how do you persuade people to change their mind? Well, I think you're going to be surprised by what Lee Hartley Carter has to say. Here's my conversation with Lee. Lee Hartley Carter, this is going to be a fantastic conversation, especially going into an election. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited about this conversation. Your book is Persuasion, Convincing Others When Facts Don't Seem to Matter. <laughs> That's roughly every person that we know right now. And we're all convinced that we're right, right? That if we can only get people to see things from our perspective, then the world will actually be better. You run a company called Mislansky, and you actually help people develop language strategy to sell their products, position their brand, run for office. You do something similar to what we do, except you really work one-on-one -on -one with clients, and we're really more educators. I'm very curious, what's going on in the world right now? As you see the world, it just feels like nobody is being persuaded of anything, and we're in our trenches and we're poking our head out every once in a while to fire a weapon and then putting our head back down. Why isn't the persuasion techniques people are using right now, why aren't they working? You know, I think at the heart of it all is that we start every conversation with the belief that if people only understood a certain number of facts, that they would see our side of the story. And we start with our position, not theirs. And so if you think about Michelle Obama's speech this week at the DNC, she focused on empathy and said, we don't have it anymore. And she was absolutely right, because the heart of the problem that we're living in right now is that we don't have empathy for people who disagree with us or have an opposite opinion of us. And by that, I mean, we're not willing to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes and try to understand why they might believe what they believe, why they think what they think, or why they're doing what they're doing. And the truth of the matter is the only way that we persuade is that we speak to somebody else's truth. We've got our set of truths. They've got theirs. And we've got to really understand their worldview before we even try to enter it. Unless and until we really understand where the other person is coming from before we engage in a conversation, we're just going to be met with a brick wall because we get more and more defensive and we think like, this message isn't for me, or you're absolutely, you don't understand where I'm coming from, or you're one of them. And it becomes very, very antagonistic in, in nature. And that's all based on behavioral science because we are hardwired to recognize things that reinforce what we already believe and reject things that don't. So the only way to break through is really to enter into the other person's world and say, I see what you're saying and let's talk about it from your perspective. It, do we have to some degree compromise on our own positions? Do we have to say, well, I could be wrong? I think that's where people are unwilling. They're unwilling to say, well, I could be wrong. Let me try to understand their position and see if mine will evolve in any way, because it does feel like a zero-sum game these days. It doesn't feel like 
we're all objectively looking for something that's true anymore. It feels like we all believe that our position is being threatened and we're defensive. And to some degree, having empathy or understanding somebody else's position may threaten my own, even survival. How do we convince somebody, no, it, it doesn't, you're going to be okay? It's so, so interesting. I think most people do enter into conversation believing that the answer is the other person must be wrong and you must convince them that they're right. We don't give people the benefit of the doubt anymore. Brene Brown talks about how we'll all be happier if we start entering into conversations with others, believing that they're doing the best they can with the tools that they have. And what we often find is that in engaging with someone of a different opinion, and whether that's politically, whether that's ideologically, whether it's philosophically, or whether it's just a different opinion about which product you should use. Usually when you engage in conversation with someone, you really try to understand where they're coming from. You're going to learn something. And you're going to find that more people, you know, we have more in common than we don't. And you'll be enriched as a result of it. Now, when I teach empathy, I teach something called active empathy, which is that most people have a natural ability to have empathy, but we only have it for people who are more like us whether it's people that you already know very well, people in your family, or people who are very much like you. We don't have natural empathy for people who are different than us. And so that takes an act of slowing down and trying to understand people in different ways. What I talk about is often about slowing yourself down enough to understand three things. Why do people believe what they believe? Why do they feel the way they feel? And why do they do what they do? And there's all kinds of reasons why when we start getting curious, we're not as activated. And that allows us to have better conversations than we otherwise would. It also allows us to get more information that's just going to help us in the long run. The resistance that I'm often met with when I talk to people about active empathy is when it's something that's really politically charged. So if you're talking to someone about, you know, politics and you're saying that you're going to be talking about gun control, very, very politically charged issue. If I talk to somebody about this, they'll say, you're expecting me to have empathy for someone who doesn't care, who hates people. And I say, no. I'm asking you not to endorse their opinion, but to understand it, to take a step back and say, why do they believe why they believe? Is it really that they're a terrible person or do they have something else going on that might allow you to understand them a little bit more? And it's in that moment, in that curiosity, in that understanding that engagement can happen, the connection can happen, and then the needle can get moved. But unless and until that happens, it won't because we all know when someone really judges us. When somebody really doesn't like us, when somebody looks at your opinion and thinks that it's not worthwhile, and that's just going to shut us down entirely and completely and without reservation. And so I think what we have to do is slow ourselves down enough to be curious about why the other person believes what they believe. My wife grew up in a small town in Louisiana, north of New Orleans, and we just drove back yesterday. So we were there yesterday. I always ask, what's the new small town drama? And they said, well, there's a school that has buildings on either side of a road, and they're asking the city to give them the road so that you don't need crossing guards, they'll just shut down the road. But that road is being used by the local independent grocery store to get food delivery. So if the, the school is given the road, then the grocery store has to shut down because they can't get delivery to their back door. So I'm like, this is perfect, so tell me what happened. So now they're in city council meetings, and one side is, you hate children and you want them to be run over. <laughs> and, the other side, and the other side is you hate this independent grocery store and you don't care about commerce or people's businesses, uh, both of which are grossly exaggerated, but that, such is nature. If you're in this city council meeting and you could pause the room and say, here's what's actually happening 
on either side. Because what we're really talking about is Trump versus Biden, right? I mean, that's what we're really talking about, the environment versus or wear a mask and don't wear a mask. We're talking about every human issue just through the microcosm of this small, wonderful town. Of Otherwise, you know, they're just beautiful people. That's one of the reasons it's so comical, because they're just such wonderful people. What's going on in the room when they're, they're saying, you hate children and you want them to be run over, versus you hate, you know, business and you want local businesses to shut down and you don't care about people's livelihoods? So here's the interesting thing. This plays right into one of the elements of empathy that I talk a lot about is the idea of values-based empathy. And that is largely based on something called the Moral Foundations Theory. It's, it's the co-author of the Moral Foundations Theory is a guy named Jonathan Haidt. He wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. But in it, he posits that most decisions that we make are based on certain moral foundations that are our primary morals. And he goes through what each of them are. But let me just sort of sum up what's happening in that room. When you have somebody who's talking about you don't care about children, you're talking to someone who is traditionally probably more on the liberal side because the primary value of liberals is usually harm versus care, meaning we have, must take care of others at all costs and we're in this together. And that's why the opinions on welfare exist such as they do. That's why gun control is the way it is on that side of the fence. And so harm versus care is the primary value. What's interesting about that as a primary value is anyone who betrays that you go right for the jugular because if you disagree with that, then you must be evil, right? right. Because it's harm versus care. You're putting because care. Because you, about you all literally love. want to harm people. That's, That's right. the way they would see it. You're putting harm before you're putting care. And that is really just egregious in the mind of people that support that. And you can understand why if that's your primary value. Now, you've got the side of, of Republicans. Jonathan Haidt says that Republicans have all different primary values. I would argue that most often the primary values of Republicans is often liberty versus oppression. Liberty versus oppression means usually you'll hear about things like freedom and opportunity, and we have a right to. So when you think about language around Republican-related issues, usually that's what it is. But basically, you'll come down to this idea that we have a right to. We have freedoms that are more important than anything else. The biggest thing that we can do is create opportunities for individuals, and that must mean that we support the small businesses before all else. If you understand that as someone's primary value, then everything else makes sense. An argument like this makes sense, and neither side is evil. They're just rooted in their beliefs. So if you want to change someone's mind, what you need to do is slow things down and say, okay, if their primary value is harm versus care, they believe that I'm putting children second to businesses. How do I have a conversation with them? In a local town meeting, it might even just mean acknowledging that. I understand that you are most concerned about students. I care about students in schools too. But I also know that for this town to survive, we need our small businesses to be able to flourish. And if we don't have the small businesses and food and opportunities for those folks, then we're going to be in trouble as well. How can we both be satisfied? Is there a way that we can compromise? Can we close the street for part of the day or not the whole day? Or is there something else that we can do? Then you're going to start having a conversation. You're going to start moving the needle. But unless and until you slow down enough to understand the other, you're just going to think that your position is the right one. Harm versus care, there is no other way. And the truth of the matter is there might be another way, and there might be a way to compromise on this in a way that both needs are met. There aren't very many times I'm trying to persuade somebody, but there are a lot of times I'm trying to be understood, and I want them to understand what I'm saying. You talk about in your book how it's really not what you say, it's what they hear. How do we know what they're hearing versus what we're actually saying? And how does that play into these conversations? Why is it so important to try to understand what they're actually hearing? 
there's intent versus impact when we're communicating, right? You do often just want to be heard or understood and offering a position that's going to help clarify something. And often we're met with this idea that that we're not being heard in the right way. This happens in conversations all the time. If you think about an argument with your spouse, you put something out there and you're like, but that's not what I meant. It happens all the time. So how do you make sure that your intent has the impact that you want it to have? Now, in professional settings or in pre-planned settings, there's a lot of things that you can do in order to make sure that that it, things land the right way. There's research. You can ask questions. You know, if it's not a big, you know, company initiative, you're talking about something that's one-on-one, you can start asking questions to someone else just to try and understand how things are landing. But in a one-on-one conversation, I think the most important thing that we can do is stop and ask questions. And I don't think we do that very often. You know, when you're trying to be understood, you know, in my family, for example, we've got huge Trump supporters and we've got Bernie Sanders supporters. We've got, you know, Christian ministers and we've got atheists. I've got all different kinds of folks. And so, you know, Thanksgiving tables can be really, really interesting and holiday conversations can get really tough. As a family, we were just watching the DNC. I've got some Trump supporters in my family and I've got some, you know, Biden supporters and we watched it all together. And then trying to understand what we took away from night one of the convention was an interesting and pretty sensitive conversation. Yeah, I would imagine. I think that when you're thinking about what is your objective in the conversation, are you trying to share a different perspective or are you trying to engage in something that might be a lightning bolt moment? I find that I really want to try and hear what others are thinking if I want to be heard, right? If I want to get a point across in some way that I think that is important. I'll try to see first where the person that I'm talking to, you know, what did you think of the night overall? What did you think of, you know, who was the best speaker? What stood out for you? What do you think was trying to be communicated? And then I'll say something like, well, here's what I heard. You know, I wasn't so sure about X, Y, Z, but the one thing that struck me is when Michelle Obama said this, I wonder if there's not something that we can do with that to move the needle forward. But if I just start launching in the conversation, not understanding where the other person's coming from, I'm probably going to step in it. And that doesn't mean that you have to temper or change your opinion. It just means that in some ways, you've got to understand the canvas on which you're communicating. And that starts with an understanding where the other person's sitting. You know, to me, it's like, uh, I'll lose this battle today in order to win the war, because the war is really about us staying a family unit in the long run. I mean, yeah, I don't care what you're position is on healthcare, you and I are not going to change it over lunch, right? Right. Good for you for doing that. But let's say that I'm not in a conversation with a family member. I am in conversation with somebody who is going to write a piece of legislation that I think is is not helpful to the country. And I am in a position where I want to persuade them. You actually talk about the importance of establishing a vision, of knowing what you believe and where you want to go as a kind of foundation of persuasion. Can you help me? I want to get into vision. I want to get into story and how your company uses story to help persuade people. Why is it so important that you frame a vision for whatever it is that you're trying to build so that people can understand and go along with you? Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because I think that creating a vision to me is the first step in persuasion. And whether that's we're thinking about what you're talking about with your family dynamic. What is your ultimate vision for what you're trying to create? Is trying to create a loving family that is able to respectfully engage in conversation. That's ultimately the most important thing. Then the way you behave is going to be one way. If you talk about 
you know, the ultimate objective is to convince every person in my family that they must believe a certain way, then you'd have to engage in a different way. But the reason that I think vision is so important is because we often don't take enough time to really slow down and think about what it looks like to be successful on the other side. And the word vision in and of itself has the first, you know, part of it contains the the same thing that begins with visual, right? If you're really clear on your vision, you should be able to visualize it so that it's crystal clear in your head exactly what it is that you're trying to accomplish at the end of the day. And when I talk to, you know, my corporate clients about what their vision is, it often starts with something like my objective is to sell X number of products in the first few months of product launch. My objective is to improve reputation by, you know, 10% over this year. Um, when I talk to, to folks about their, you know, political beliefs, their objective is to convince everybody that Joe Biden is the right pick or, you know, fill in the answer. I ask people to say, I want you to really be able to describe in most detail, visual terms, what it is that you're trying to achieve. And the story that I often tell in order to try to help understand the difference between just an objective and a vision is this. When I first graduated college, I had a boyfriend who broke up with me sort of unceremoniously, and I was really upset. So one of my best friends took me out for drinks and tried to cheer me up. And that night he was telling me that in the long run, you're better off, right? This isn't going to be a big deal in the long run. So where do you want to be in five years or 10 years? What's your dream? And I was like, I don't know, five or 10 years, I guess I'd like to be married, have a job, maybe by 10 years, have a baby or two, I guess. And he was like, that's your dream. Are you kidding me? That's your dream. That's not a dream. That's pathetic. (laughs) Let me tell you, let me tell you what a dream is. In 10 years time, I want to be on my boat coming back to the marina. I will have gone fishing for the day with my brother and dad, and I will be playing Hollywood Nights over the radio by Bob Seger. The wind is going to be blowing through my hair. I'm going to be coming back into the marina, and my wife and daughter is going to be there waiting for me. And in that moment, I'm going to know that I've succeeded. That, Lee, is a dream. What's your dream? And I was like, I want your dream. The point of this is he had such a clear vision of where he was going, that he knew how to achieve it. And he has that boat and that marina and that whole, you know, a successful business and all that because he was so crystal clear about where he was going. I think when we're trying to persuade others, we need to be that clear on what it is that we're trying to accomplish. What do we want the country to look like? What do we want our family to look like? What do we want our company to look like? What does product sales look like? What is it that we're really trying to accomplish, but in a way that you're so crystal clear on exactly what you're trying to accomplish? I'll be right back in just a moment with the rest of my conversation with Lee Hartley Carter. If you're looking for somebody to coach you in business, that is give you a tip, a strategy every day that's just going to make you money, I've got that and it's free. Just go to businessmadesimple.com slash daily. That's businessmadesimple.com slash daily. And I send over 100,000 people. That's no joke. 100,000 people, a video five days a week that gives them a tip on how to get hired, what to say in an interview, how to ask for a raise, what to do the second you get fired, how to run a meeting, all that kind of stuff. There are specific ways to do things that will play to your advantage. If you want to learn them, go to businessmadesimple.com slash daily. It's a free daily video from me, businessmadesimple.com slash daily. 
daily. You say in the book that the benefits of vision are that it gives us a focus, it gets others on board, and it's actually a motivating factor. You also go into the pitfalls, and I'm curious about the pitfalls of self-talk, deferring to cynics, looking outside yourself. Are you meaning that our vision can be attacked and it can't feel as solid or as grounded as we want? What do you mean by pitfalls of the vision? So oftentimes when we're creating a vision, we stop ourselves before we get done with it. So if I were to have a vision like Glenn's when I was 22, I would say, well, what if I don't get married? What if I never meet somebody? What if, you know, X, Y, Z happens? And then I would find all the reasons why I shouldn't think about that vision. We do that all the time now, like in whether you think about, well, I'll never be able to have a successful conversation with somebody different politically because the times are just too tough and everyone's just going to shut down. So why even bother? Or you know, you might say, I want to have a great marketing initiative. And they'll be like, but you know what? The lawyers are never going to let us say it. So let's not, you know, we can't do that. Or we'll talk ourselves out of whatever reason, regulatory, lawyers, the political climate, the way that we can communicate, the budget that we've got, the things that we get in the way that often just slows us down from having a clear vision of where we want to go. So what I try to do is say, let's separate out two things. First, create your vision. And if any of those things creep in, any of those no's, reasons why you can't, Hold them for later, but create your vision first. And then second, go through all the reasons why it can't be true. Go through all the reasons why, you know, if your goal is to run for office in your town, wait for the other reasons that, you know, that you are not going to be able to run for office. You know, if it's because you have some baggage that you're afraid of, or if you've got some reason, you know, the other person is so well known, or if it's because, you know, your district has never voted for a Democrat before, whatever those things are. Have that be the second thing that you look at. And then in that second thing, you'll start to realize that some of those weaknesses, you can turn into strengths. Some of the reasons why you might not be able to run for office, you could turn into a strength. I mean, if you think about what Donald Trump did when he ran for president, a lot of people said he had no experience. So he put that to the side. And then once he decided I was going to run anyway, he turned that into a strength. Yeah, I might not have any experience down in D.C., but I am a businessman. I'm going to make deals like you've never seen. And I'm going to drain the swamp and it's an advantage that I'm an outsider. Right. And so I'm not saying be like Donald Trump. That's not all what I'm trying to say. But I think the difference and the important thing is to do is take your vision and separate out from the reasons why you can't achieve your vision and then deal with those separately. You also talk about once you have your vision and you're grounded in your vision, and you believe it and it's largely attack proof. Now you've got to explain it and you've got to invite other people into it. You do that with a master narrative. And of course, that's one of the things that we do here is we teach people how to use narrative in order to persuade. But I'm curious about your the pillars of a master narrative from your and Maslansky's perspective. What are the pillars of a master narrative that you would teach to an executive trying to you know guide an, a merger with another company or or something like that? What is the master narrative in your mind? So master narrative is a singularly focused idea that communicates exactly where it is that you're trying to go and what is it engages people. And it helps you understand the vision and where you're going. So if you think about it um, in terms of companies, Nike is a great example of a company that has a great master narrative. Their tagline is just do it, but their master narrative under that is helping you know everybody bring out the inner athlete and everyone, right. right? And so then everything that they do ladders up to that. And you can tell when something is Nike because you just know what it is. When they engage in anything, everything can ladder up to that. 
whether they're talking about their products, whether they're talking about corporate social responsibility, whether they're taking a stand on a political issue, everything ladders up to that and it keeps them focused and grounded and it makes sense for them. It's a great way to let, run everything through. So that's an example of a company that does it really, really well. There's other examples, you know, that we can talk about in politics right now. If you look at Donald Trump in 2016, his master narrative was make America great again. Like it or not, he had it. It was one singularly focused idea and he repeated it over and over again. And all of his policy ideas laddered up to that. It's really interesting. So Joe Biden was was fighting for the soul of America for a while. And not sure exactly what that meant, but it was what he was talking about. Now he's got this idea that he's trying to flesh out, which is build back better. Last night, Bill Clinton spoke in his speech and he used build back better in his speech. And they did a pretty good job of it. It's interesting. If you think about build back better versus make America great again, right? Just from a pure language perspective, there's a lot more strength in, in making America great there is, again. Because it's a finish line. Yeah. So build back better is how we make America great again. It's not a finish line. It doesn't close the story loops in the human mind. Yeah. And it's also awkward. It's just like there's so many, there's so many things wrong with it. But now we've been through two nights of the convention. And I still am not clear on what build back better means. Now, I know his, you know, Joe Biden. You know why you're not, Lee? Because they're not. They're not clear about what it means. They're trying to explain. And I've been there a million times. We're trying to explain something. And then suddenly I stop and realize, you know what? This isn't even clear to me. <laughs> it's not clear to me. How am I going to? I'm trying to talk this out on a stage. And uh, I need to go back into the into my writing shed and figure this out a little bit, as we all do when we're yeah. trying to persuade people. What is your worldview? What do you want the world to look like visually? Where are we going? And uh, Build Back Better is not a place that you take people. You know, and I think that if they had gone through the exercise of creating a really clear vision, what is Joe Biden's America? What is America like if Joe Biden is president? What is the vision? And then the master narrative should clearly express to all of us so that we can see it, exactly what that is. Build Back Better doesn't do that. Joe Biden's vision isn't yet clear to us and he needs to make it clear to us. It is his responsibility to make it clear to us because that is gonna be the difference between winning and losing. Because here in this moment, right, Joe Biden is winning in the polls, but Two-thirds of voters that are supporting Joe Biden are doing so because it's he is not Donald Trump. Only one-third of voters are supporting him because he is Joe Biden. That's really, really a problem because when you want somebody to do something for you, you want them to be doing it for you. When you want somebody to be voting for you, it's because you want them for you. When they want when you want somebody to buy your product, you want it because they want your product, not because it's better than tied. Right? It's like that's not a good enough reason. And so the story and the job of the master narrative and the job of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris right now is to show us what that is and use story, use language to get it across to us. If I'm walking into a room, if some of our listeners are walking into a room and there's an antagonistic audience that has yet to buy into my vision, you know, Lee, you're a consultant with somebody in that situation so many times. What's the one thing that you want them to think about walking into that room before they deliver their presentation? What's the one thing that you, you would just say, hey, we don't have time for a full consultation right now, but remember this when you go in with your proposal? What's most important to the people in that room? Mm. Couldn't be said better. Yeah. You know, I think that what we start out with so many times is trying to figure out how do we convince somebody that they're the right person for the job instead of what do those people need in that moment? There you go. Position yourself as the solution to their problem. What's their problem? 
and position yourself and your proposal as a solution to that problem. Lee, I think we're all going to buy your book. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and probably just a week or two after this podcast comes out, the book Persuasion is going to be coming out in paperback, so you can save a few bucks on it. Where else can people find out more about you, Lee? So you can find out more about me on LeeHartleyCarter.com or um, my company website, Meslansky.com. Would love to hear from you. Great. Well, Lee, thank you so much. It's been a, a stimulating conversation. Hopefully, people everywhere from small towns wanting to close down a street to getting elected president will listen and take some of your advice. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> So there you go, JJ. It's it's between Karen Harm versus Liberty and Freedom, and there can't be the two cannot the, coexist. The two, there the two shall meet. <laughs> it is. I mean, our brains get so the brain literally. You've studied this a little bit. It shuts down when you're emotionally triggered. That's one of the reasons I told Lee that in my family, when I start to get hooked and start getting feeling some emotions, yeah. If I'm with somebody I love, conversation's over. Yep. Because. I do not want to risk the fact that you would not think I care about you. Yeah. It's because I got to live with that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, even yeah. that's selfish. It's yeah. like, I want to live, I got to live with you. That's one of the reasons Betsy and I don't fight. It's like, not worth it. Let's leave that to Fox News and MSNBC. You and I are going to stay married. Let's make out. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, she was fascinating and, and so helpful. Yeah. I just love that she didn't, you know, I'm sure she's got some political biases. Yeah. But I love that she didn't care so much about that. She cared about people. And what, here's what we didn't get to that's in the book. It's not in the interview. Is the importance of connection. Yes. That instead of persuading your audience, connect. Yep. Make the goal to connect. You got to read that in the book because we didn't get to it. Lee, thank you so much for your time. Again, we'd love to have you back because I don't think we finished that conversation. We'll bring you back uh, next time. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's latest record, Dive Deep Hushed, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. <laughs>